Thank you very much, Pastor Mark. And thank you, Lighthouse Bible Church, for having me. It is great to be back here with you. I do believe it's been nearly two years since I've had that privilege of being here with you. I was scheduled to come this past April, but as Pastor Mark mentioned around that time, my son Enoch Nathaniel Yang was stillborn at 36 weeks of pregnancy, admittedly leaving me in no shape to come and preach. At the time, I was literally struggling to even speak in complete sentences. My fellow pastor Ryan graciously filled in and came to Lighthouse at that time. You might recall him from this past April. God has been very gracious to Emily and me, and even though initially we were quite devastated by our son's stillbirth, we're doing much better now. Our God is so gracious, and of note, your two of your elders, Ted and Pastor Mark, very much did minister to my family and me with their visits and concern during that season, and for that I certainly am very grateful. To begin today, my name is Amos Yang, as you heard and I've had a long and varied relationship with awkwardness. I was a rather shy child, and as the younger brother in a family of two boys, growing up I very often relied upon my older brother Alex to speak for me. One day though, Alex went off to college and I was on my own, and so I had to learn somewhat for the very first time how to speak to others without any help. Those years in high school were definitely filled with plenty of moments of awkwardness. For example, one of my hobbies in those days was playing the violin in the local youth orchestra. One day during my junior year, I was talking on the phone to my stand partner, wasting time, and she said to me, you know, Amos, I really like talking to you. If you have time, I think we should go out for dinner and a movie. At that moment, I thought to myself, what am I supposed to say right now? I didn't know the answer, and so I said nothing. That conversation soon ended. Several years later, when I had graduated from college and was now in medical school, I decided to pursue a girl at church. I set a time to meet with her and told her that I was interested if she would allow me to pursue her in a relationship. She replied, oh wow, this is awkward. She then gently but clearly told me she wasn't interested. I thought that was the end of that, but a week later, I received in the mail a typed letter from the girl's mother telling me not to take no for an answer and to continue pursuing her daughter. Now, I felt awkward, and I thought to myself, well, this is just great. The mom likes me, but the girl herself doesn't. And that, of course, went nowhere. Not long after that, I experienced an epiphany of sorts. Awkwardness, I realized, isn't necessary. And in a very real sense, it isn't even real. By that, what I mean is that it has no objective physical presence, since it has no length, width, depth, or weight. And also, I noticed that in the exact same situations, one person might feel awkward while another person feels no such thing. That implies that how you feel in any given moment is up to you and a decision you make, whether consciously or not. I decided then and there to simply refuse to ever feel awkward. And ever since then, I'd have to say that decision has served me quite well. For example, 
Several years ago, soon after I moved from Chicago to Los Angeles, I was speaking one evening with a fellow leader of the college Bible study in which both of us were serving, Grace on Campus at UCLA. This fellow leader was female and lamented to me that in her view, so many of the men in our ministry were socially awkward. I told her that I agreed. She then told me, you know, Amos, you're kind of awkward too. I definitely didn't disagree and simply smiled. I think most people in that situation would have felt awkward, but I felt no such thing. A second example has to do with my wife, Emily, sitting back there. When I initially pursued her many years back, among other things, I told her, I am crazy about you. She forthrightly responded that she did not share the sentiment. I think most people in that situation would feel sad or awkward, but no, not me. I felt entirely fine and I said, that's okay. And the rest, as they say, is history. Unfortunately, despite my prior resolution that has served me well over the years, I'd have to acknowledge I do feel some awkwardness today. And the reason is because the texts of scripture that I'm preaching today are about how you should interact with and treat your church leader. I'm not one of your church leaders, but I'm a church leader elsewhere. And so if I preach to you that Christians should treat their leaders well, that might seem like I'm just preaching for my own benefit, and therein lies the problem. Fortunately, I can tell you that we're preaching the truths we're looking at today simply because they are in the scriptures, which I trust that you'll see in just a minute. I would also tangentially emphasize that your leaders here did not ask me to speak on this topic. We're preaching these truths because this is what I believe God has set upon my heart to proclaim to you this morning. Our text is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17. And in these verses, you're going to see four imperatives regarding you and your church leaders. Four imperatives regarding you and your church leaders. You need to hear and live out these imperatives so that you can be in obedience to God, pleasing to him and a source of joy and not grief to both God and your church leaders. Turn with me now, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. I'll be reading from the New American Standard, 1995. Here the author of this letter writes these words. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. This word remember at the very beginning of the verse refers to exactly what it sounds like, deliberately calling something to your mind. The phrase, those who led you in the original is what we call a present participle, which means that it refers not so much to those who have led you in the past as much as it does to those who lead you in the present. And that's why several English translations, including the excellent English Standard Version, render this clause as, Remember your leaders, present tense. The leaders being referred to here are your church leaders, not your leaders in other areas such as in government or in work. And you know this because the author explains that he's referring to those who spoke the word of God to you. That's what church leaders are to do. And so the command here is that you actively and regularly think about your church leaders. We'll see how and why in just a bit. 
First, do notice that this command assumes a couple things about you. First, that you have church leaders, and second, that they know who you are. And also, I would actually add third, that you know who they are. This brings you to the first imperative regarding you and your church leaders, which is simply to have church leaders. Have church leaders. What we mean is that you should not be church leaderless, and you should be clear on who those leaders are. Otherwise, how can you possibly obey this command to think about your leaders? A Christian without church leaders is a self-contradiction, and yet the reality is that that is the situation of many, many Christians. Notice with me for just a bit here that virtually every important relationship in your life is somehow defined and delineated. So, for example, if you work, if you're working, how do you know who your employer is? How does the world around you know who your employer is? Typically, your employer is the person or entity with whom you signed a contract that defines your employment relationship. Or an even simpler way to know who your employer is, is who pays you. If you have kids, how does the world know and how do you know who those kids are? Exactly whose kids those kids are. Typically, there's a birth or adoption certificate with your child's name, your name, your spouse's name, and so forth that clearly signals that child is yours. Or if you're married... How does the world know who your spouse is? Perhaps you had a wedding. Your spouse is that person who stood next to you at that ceremony in front of a whole bunch of witnesses. Even if you didn't have a formal wedding ceremony, there's typically a wedding or marriage certificate somewhere. Your spouse is the person whose name is next to yours on that certificate. In all of these relationships, notice that there is a clarity that everyone has on the relationship because it is clearly defined and delineated. So, how do you know who your church leaders are? The answer is church membership. When you become a member of a church, you and the leaders clearly communicate to the entire world that you now belong to that church, and that church's leaders are your church leaders. Anything short of that would be merely confusion of one degree or another. If you're a member of a church, then you have church leaders. If you aren't a member of a church, you probably don't have church leaders. If you doubt the reality of this, consider the following with me. Let's hypothetically say that today is your very first Sunday here at Lighthouse. Does your being here at this church for a single Sunday obligate you and the leaders of this church to the responsibilities described in Scripture for church leaders and church members? I think everyone agrees the answer is no. Perhaps you're just visiting from out of town or in the process of visiting a whole bunch of different churches. Okay, how about if you come next Sunday for a second time in a row? What if you come twice a year, every year, on Easter and Christmas? What about if you just come for a month straight and then no longer? Or how about six months straight? Or a year or two? Or even ten years? At what point do the leaders of this church magically and officially become your church leader? I think you see the problem. 
in the absence of clear definition, you don't really have church leaders. That clear definition is accomplished, though, through church membership. So if you've been coming to Lighthouse for a while now and aren't yet a member, you should ask yourself, why? Why aren't you a member? Who are your church leaders, and how can you possibly obey this verse that commands you to remember your leaders if you don't have leaders? Over at New Life, I would forthrightly acknowledge that the pastors view and treat the members of the church differently than non-members. When someone applies for membership, that signals to the pastors, I want you to be my church leaders. I want you to shepherd me. Please do so. In the absence of that, the pastors assume that the person probably doesn't want us to be involved in their life quite in that way. If they do, our understanding is that they would apply for church membership. So the first imperative regarding you and your church leaders is to have church leaders. Looking again now at verse 7, that verse says, Remember those who led you, and then it says this, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. This brings you to the second imperative regarding you and your church leaders, and that is to imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. You see that right there at the end of verse 7. When we say that you're to imitate the faith of your church leaders, we mean at least two things. First, receive the word of God. Receive the word of God. This verse says that your leaders speak the word of God to you. The assumption is that they believe God's word and proclaim it. You, in turn, are to receive it and to imitate them in their faith in that word of God. This is one reason why it's so important to attend only a Bible-teaching church. There are such things as churches that are religious institutions of various sorts, but don't actually speak and teach the word of God. If you ever find yourself in that kind of church where the pastors don't believe the Bible in its absolute entirety, I definitely would encourage you to run and not look back. Second, learn from their lifestyle. Learn from their lifestyle. In the middle of this verse, the author tells you to consider the result of their conduct, the outcome of their conduct. That word consider means to closely observe something in the word conduct, refers to a way of life or lifestyle. The assumption is that the church leaders live a life worth imitating, a life worth emulating, a life consistent with the word of God that they proclaim. That would be a life of holiness that is set apart from the world. Church leaders are to live that kind of life so that Christians can learn holiness substantially just by imitating them. This is one of the reasons why I personally am disturbed when I observe church leaders seemingly taking pride in living a worldly life rather than a holy one. It is increasingly popular and hip, so to speak, for leaders to, of churches to affirm and teach the doctrines of Christ and yet at the same time live a life that is entirely unworthy of Christ. The Bible commands, though, that we be holy and distinct from the world, just like how our God is holy and distinct. But the popular Christian ethic today is to bizarrely think that your responsibility is to be similar to the world so that the world doesn't think that you're weird. 
That is such foolish thinking. Nothing good can come from that. This world is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the Bible says. That is Satan. And so the last thing that church leaders or you should do is to be like the world. Earlier, I told you that if you find yourself at a church where the pastors don't believe the word of God in its absolute entirety, run and don't look back. I know that this isn't a problem at Lighthouse, but perhaps you're visiting today, or maybe one day in the future you find yourself at a different church after moving away to another part of the country for work or whatever. Somewhat similar to, but different to from what I said before. If you ever find yourself at a church where the leaders don't believe in holy and godly living and don't model that to you, again, you should run and not look back. Never go to a church where the pastors are worldly people. Let's now jump down to verse 17, which is related to you and your church leaders as well. Here in verse 17, the author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. We now arrive at what is one of the most controversial verses in the entire book of Hebrews and perhaps the New Testament. This verse commands that you obey your leaders, but that kind of obedience is so contrary to our sinful flesh for various reasons. For example, you do find yourself here in the United States. Outside of the United States, throughout the entire world, it is well known that Americans have a love affair with the values of freedom and individualism, both of which are often in conceptual tension with obedience to anyone. During my childhood, on the school playground, I learned the American mantra, you can't tell me what to do. This is a free country. We Americans take this ethic with us into adulthood, so much so that this verse is so foreign and unacceptable to most American Christians. If you were to survey American Christians and ask them, are you obligated to obey your church leaders and submit to them, you would find that the vast majority would say no despite the clarity of this verse. Similarly, if you were to ask people, do you believe that church leaders have real and actual authority over you? The vast majority would again say no. Even those who would say yes would then likely quickly nuance and limit the command so severely that it becomes functionally meaningless and no longer means what it clearly does mean. We'll say more about that in just a second. It isn't just American culture, though, that has a problem with the concept of obedience to church leaders. Eastern cultures have a problem with it as well. In Asian cultures, your primary obligation for life is to your parents, even after you've long grown up into being an adult and have kids of your own. The idea of obeying your church leaders, especially over and against your parents, is a laughable thought for most Asian families. And yet the verse here is clear. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. 
This brings you to the third imperative regarding you and your church leaders, and that is to submit to them. Submit to them. Regarding this imperative, let's organize our thoughts under four headings. First, let's talk about the meaning of the command. The meaning of the command is fairly simple, and it means exactly what your English Bible says. Obey means obey, and submit means to submit. Despite the efforts of many, running to the Greek doesn't change anything here because the Greek says exactly the same thing as the English. When I was an undergraduate student at Northwestern University, my favorite class every single year was Chinese class. One day we read the story of four women talking around the mahjong table about how they relate to their husbands. The first woman said, I submit to my husband in everything. Whatever he tells me to do, I do. The second woman said, you apparently haven't heard of feminism. Your marriage is so out of date. In my marriage, I make my husband submit to me. Whatever I tell him, he obeys. The third woman said, my husband and I are definitely much more fair. Whenever we have a disagreement, we flip a coin. Whoever wins the coin toss wins the argument. And of course, now the three women were looking at the fourth, and the fourth woman said, two of you are too extreme in one direction or the other, and you hear your marriage apparently is ruled by a coin. How crazy is that? My husband and I have the right system. We submit to each other half and half. When we agree, I submit to him. When we disagree, he submits to me. That silly story from my Chinese class illustrates how many people think of submission. You might think you're obligated to submit to someone only when you already agree with the content of the command. That, of course, is nonsensical, though, and makes submission entirely irrelevant. Submission is functionally relevant primarily or only when you disagree. And so the meaning of the command here is to obey and submit to your church leaders even when what they ask of you is not to your initial liking. Second, let's talk about various attempts to negate this command. Because so many people, for various reasons, chafe at the idea of having to obey and submit to anyone, let alone church leaders of all people, there have been many, many attempts to negate the command of this verse. The first and most common way is to simply ignore it. This is where you talk about the parts of the Bible that are easily, more easy to stomach, but ignore verses like this one. It isn't just people in the pews that are guilty of this. Pastors admittedly often are also guilty of this as well, due to understandably not wanting to provoke trouble or opposition. I acknowledged to you earlier that it can be awkward for a leader to teach that you should obey your leaders. Another way people negate the command here is to redefine the words. There have been plenty of attempts to uh, redefine these words obey and submit so that they no longer mean obey and submit. One problem with this is that you have to spin not just one, but two words in a single verb. Another problem at this type of, re of this re attempt of re redefinition is that it defies intelligence and rationality. 
A third problem is that once you negate this verse through redefinition, you're now left with a useless verse that has no meaning or significance or utility. But clearly no part of Scripture, God's very voice, is meaningless and insignificant when correctly interpreted and received. A fourth and devastating problem at redefinition here is that once you'd redefine these simple words so that they no longer mean what they clearly mean, you then can plausibly redefine any other words in Scripture as well, including the words Jesus, God, sin, death, resurrection, salvation, forgiveness, gospel, hope, heaven, hell, and so on. If you negate this verse, what stops you or the skeptic watching nearby from similarly negating the rest of the scriptures? We understand why and that pagans do that, but for Christians, we should never ever dare go anywhere near such evil activity. A third way people negate the command here is to restrict its relevance. The most common way this is done is to say that you're obligated to obey your church leaders only when they speak content that is already explicitly found on the pages of Scripture. So the idea goes, if your pastor tells you, don't steal, and you think, okay, yes, that is in the Bible, it's right here, I guess I will submit to my pastor in that. But if your pastor then says, how about you come to church on time rather than half an hour late like you always do, you then say, nope, I don't see that anywhere on the pages of Scripture. Therefore, I don't have to submit to the pastor in this because it isn't in the Bible. Even though that kind of thinking is common and sounds compelling to many people, it actually is entirely irrational and devoid of intelligence. One reason you know this is because the verse does not provide that kind of restriction. That restriction has to be arbitrarily and artificially inserted, which is dangerous because God warns in his word that he condemns and will punish people who add to his word. Another reason you can't restrict the command in this verse to only the pages of scripture is because that would make the verse entirely meaningless. Even without this verse, you always have to obey the words of Scripture, regardless of whether any human being, whether your pastor or parent or husband or whoever, tells you to do so. If the exhortation of this verse were only for you to obey Scripture, then it would have said, obey Scripture and submit to it. What it says, though, is obey your leaders and submit to them. To understand what we're talking about here, notice the various other contexts in which the Bible commands obedience and submission. Besides your obedience, of course, to God himself, the Bible also commands your submission to the government, your employer, your husband if you're a wife, your parents if you're a child still financially dependent upon your parents, and here in this passage, your church leaders. Now notice that commands of any sort can be biblical extra-biblical, or anti-biblical, also known as unbiblical. Biblical commands are those that are found in Scripture. Commands like worship Jesus, live a holy life, dress modestly, pray regularly, and love your wife. 
extra-biblical or ah-biblical commands aren't in the Bible, but they also aren't prohibited by the Bible. Examples would be to come to church on time, finish your Fundamentals of the Faith workbook homework, please cook a vegetable for dinner, don't sneeze on other people's food, or, in the case of my son Asher, put away your toys. Unbiblical or anti-biblical commands are ones that violate scripture. Commands like become a Muslim, be worldly, affirm, affirm homosexuality, get drunk on alcohol, and steal Bob's AirPods. Hopefully, we all already agree that we should all always obey biblical commands and never obey anti-biblical commands regardless of who issues those mandates. The question is what you're supposed to do in this middle category of extra-biblical commands, ones that are neither required nor prohibited by Scripture. So, for example, when I tell my son, Asher, to put away his toys, can he legitimately respond, No, Daddy, that command is nowhere in Scripture. You can't cite book, chapter, and verse. Therefore, I will not obey you in putting away my toys. He can't say that because the Bible commands that children obey their parents, and that means obedience specifically in this middle category of extra-biblical command. Yes, Asher certainly has to obey biblical commands as well, but the reason he has to is because they're commanded by God, not by me. Even if I were to be a neglectful father and theoretically never command that Asher live a holy life, he would still need to do so because God commands that. This means that the command that children obey their parents is primarily relevant only in that middle category of extra-biblical command. Using another example, I live in the city of Cupertino, and the Cupertino municipal government says that I can't build a fence around my property higher than seven feet tall, as I discovered several years ago. Should I march down to City Hall, slam a Bible on the counter, and say, I refuse to comply because the Bible never says that? I'm going to build a fence that's nine feet tall, which is what I initially wanted. No, I can't do that because the Bible says I have to obey the government. And that's relevant specifically in this middle category of extra-biblical command. Using yet another example for the sake of clarity, take your boss. If your boss tells you, I need you to work on this project over here, should you take a stand and say, no, I refuse because that project is never commanded in the Bible? Again, of course not, because you're biblically obligated to submit to your boss, and that's relevant specifically in the middle category of extra-biblical command. I think you get the idea. In all of these contexts in which God commands that you display obedience and submission, that specifically means in the middle category of extra-biblical command. And this is why it is simply irrational to claim that the command of verse 17 applies only to when church leaders speak the commands of Scripture itself. Just like in all of the other contexts where the Bible requires that you obey someone, the imperative to submit to your church leaders is given specifically for that middle context of extra-biblical command. 
A fourth way people negate the command here is to claim what I would call extra-biblical revelation. A common example of this is when someone tells you that God told them to defy their pastor. And by this, they don't mean that there is a book, chapter, and verse of the Bible that required this of them. They instead mean that God spoke to them outside the pages of Scripture. A close variation to this is when someone tells you, I prayed about it. As if prayer can ever justify defiance to God's written word. The problem with this attempt to negate the command is that God will never through any means, prayer or otherwise, tell you to defy his written word. Any perceptions otherwise are either merely your imagination, your flesh, or thoughts and impressions planted by Satan himself. At this point, I understand that some of you might be feeling a bit uncomfortable. Perhaps that's just the Holy Spirit interfacing with your heart. Regardless, don't worry. In just a bit, we'll talk about the limitations on this command. We talked about the meaning of the command and attempts to negate it. Let's now thirdly talk about the reason for the command. Looking back at the text, after the author says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, he says, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There are two reasons for this command for you to obey your church leaders. The first would be they keep watch over your soul. They keep watch over your soul. In a biblical church, the leaders do exactly that. They keep watch over your soul. This assumes that you allow them to get to know you, talk to you, and also ask you questions that help them monitor the state of your soul. It also presupposes that you answer those questions honestly and transparently. This verse teaches against what's known as spectator Christianity, which is where you go to church merely as a spectator to watch other people so-called perform. All the while, there's really no meaningful shepherding relationship between you and the leaders at that spectator Christianity church. In a situation like that, then there are really no leaders keeping watch over your soul. We've been talking quite a bit about church leaders today. Let's be clear on who exactly we're talking about. Who are the leaders in a church? Ultimately, the leaders of a church are the elders of a church. The word pastor, by the way, is biblically synonymous with the word elder. The New Testament teaches that all churches are to have elders who teach, rule, and shepherd the church. Elders, in turn, often are assisted in ministry by others that they designate and delegate to. Those might include Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, disciples, ministry team leaders, and so forth. A second reason you're to obey your church leaders is that they will give an account for your soul. You see that right here in the middle of the verse. You may have never realized, but one day every church leader will be called by God to account for the state of the souls he entrusted to them. Do you even know that your church leaders have that responsibility? We talked about the meaning of the command, attempts to negate it, and the reason for it. Let's now talk about the limitations to the command. 
This command that you obey your church leaders definitely isn't an absolute and unlimited command. Going back to the trifold division of biblical, extra-biblical, and anti-biblical, you're never to submit to a church leader nor anyone else when you're being asked to do or believe something anti-biblical. In such a situation, you simply have to obey God rather than men. Second, you also heard about the assumption behind verse 7 earlier. We looked at that verse. The assumption that your church leaders teach the Bible and live a godly life. If that isn't the case, those church leaders shouldn't be church leaders. And hence, you should remove yourself from that kind of congregation. Heretics and worldly men should not be followed. I would point out that there are times when a pastor previously was orthodox in doctrine and godly in character, but then subsequently becomes either unorthodox or ungodly or, oftentimes, both. If and when that change occurs, he should be confronted in a biblical manner. If he fails to repent, he should no longer be followed and people should depart from that church. Third, another assumption behind the verses that we're looking at today is that church leaders lead for your benefit, not theirs. As verse 17 says, they are to keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account. 1 Peter 5 says that elders are to shepherd the flock of God according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to their charge. One way we can phrase this is that church leaders are to lead for your benefit, not their own financial benefit. If you find yourself at a church where it seems that leaders are leading exclusively for their own benefit, then you are at the wrong church. So, for example, if the leader says, give me all of your money, or buy me a new car, or sin for my benefit and the sake of my reputation publicly, then you're obviously at the wrong church. If you keep up with the news, you're likely aware that Christian churches are sometimes racked with scandals related to ungodly pastors. I believe that there are at least two reasons for this. The first would be that most Christians prioritize giftedness over godliness. Giftedness over godliness. Many of these pastoral scandals are centered on men who are indisputably very, very gifted, but who unfortunately prove to also be very ungodly. The qualifications for elder described in Scripture are primarily about godliness, not giftedness, but Christians usually prioritize the reverse, and this is disastrous. Always prioritize godliness over giftedness, character over performance. This is to be true for all Christians, not just pastors. A second reason for the frequency of pastoral scandals is that most Christians look for the wrong things in churches. Even if they might not verbalize it this way, most Christians are looking for churches that are entertaining and flashy rather than Bible-centered and characterized by genuine pastoral shepherding. This again goes back to what we earlier called spectator Christianity, 
where people are looking for a superficial show of some sort rather than an authentic Christian community that includes church leaders who keep watch over your soul. Looking back at the text, towards the end of verse 17, the author writes, let them do this with joy and not grief or groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. The flow of thought here in this verse is fairly straightforward. You're to obey your leaders and submit to them so that they can watch over your soul with joy and not grief or groaning. You can probably imagine that defiance towards your church leaders causes them grief and not joy. You want to be the type of person who, when your leaders think of you, they smile rather than become depressed, cry, or think of quitting the ministry. This brings you to the fourth and last imperative for this morning regarding you and your church leaders, and that's this. Be a blessing to them. Be a blessing to them. This verse tells you that anything less is not profitable to you. No one benefits when and if you're a source of grief to your elders. You certainly don't benefit from that. Pastor John MacArthur points out, for members of the body to be in rebellion against their pastors and elders prevents proper learning and proper growth. It brings spiritual barrenness and bitterness. A person who never brings joy will never have joy. When we do not have a loving and obedient spirit, God is displeased, our leaders are grieved, and we lose our joy as well. Over at New Life, I openly acknowledge that quite a few people at the church over the years have been people who are a joy to lead and shepherd. I would definitely say that the vast majority of our members are in that boat. And for that, I know the other elders and I at New Life are grateful. If asked, I would also acknowledge that there have been individuals over the years who have fallen far short of the biblical standard taught in this verse. This is probably true at every church. There are also people who mistakenly think that they aren't causing their leaders grief and yet actually are due to the poor behavior towards their ministry team leaders, disciplers, Bible study leaders, and others to whom the elders delegate ministry responsibilities. At this point, you might wonder whether you've been a source of grief to one or, your more, or more of your leaders. If so, I would encourage you to forthrightly ask them whether that's the case. And if it is, be sure to make that right. Confess your sin, ask for your forgiveness, and repent. Some of you already know that you've been a source of grief to one or more of your leaders. If so, you don't even need to ask whether that's the case. Simply do what's right. Confess your sin, ask for forgiveness, and repent. Today you've seen four imperatives regarding you and your church leaders. Have church leaders, imitate their faith, submit to them, and be a blessing to them. Let's live out these imperatives. Please pray with me.
our gracious and precious Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for your word, its relevance, its comprehensiveness, its sufficiency, its authority. We thank you that it speaks so directly to our lives. We know that the verses we've looked at today, for some prompt joy, and for others prompt trepidation, or even grief. Regardless, we ask that you would empower us to respond rightly now. That where there is conviction, that that would be propelled and translated into action. Where there is no conviction, that that would be converted into conviction by your Holy Spirit. Thank you so much, Father. We ask that you continue to bless us as we prepare ourselves, especially to approach your Son's table. In your Son's precious and holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.